This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. Can you reform politics so much that you actually break it? Today, we're going to look at the idea that American politics was reformed to the point of destruction, to the point where Donald Trump is an inevitability because no one has the political strength left to stop him. And that this virus has infected Irish politics too. And we'll just end up with a doll like the US Congress, unable to pass a budget because there are no votes in governance. Perhaps we need disruption, but if the result is chaos, are we better off with the status quo? In studio, Liam Kennedy is Director of the Clinton Institute at UCD. Karen Devine is a lecturer in international relations in the School of Law and Government and Fulbright Ambassador at DCU. Terry Prone is Chairman of the Communications Clinic. And Johnny Fallon is Political Analyst with Car Communications. Now, from our Twitter account, sometimes I set listeners' homework. And this week's homework was an article from the Atlantic Magazine Summer Edition by Jonathan Roche. And when I read it, I saw parallels with Irish politics, especially this part. In their various ways, Trump, Cruz and Sanders are demonstrating a new principle. The political parties no longer have either intelligible boundaries or enforceable norms. And as a result, renegade political behaviour pays. Liam Kennedy, discuss. Discuss. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Thanks for the homework, Sarah. It's very (laughs) useful. Oh, I believe in working Um, people hard. A terrific piece. I'm glad I read it. Uh, The thesis is that um, the American body politic is beset by what uh, the writer calls a chaos system. As you say, the idea is that we've no longer got enforceable norms. There's no accountability. So mavericks come to the fore and the centre gets torn apart. Uh, I think there's many good points in that, particularly this idea that somehow reform has worked against the system itself. In some ways, the establishment has torn itself apart. Um, Before we get to those reforms, though, I think it's worth taking a step back to think about what the system was supposed to do. And if we go back a little bit, at least, say, let's say the 1780s and the 1770s. That will do fine. That's fine. Why are we going back 230 years? It's to think a little bit about how that system was put in place and why. Now, basically, within the American political system, you have what's called a separation of powers. There are three strands at work here. You've got the judiciary, which is essentially the Supreme Court and federal courts. You've got the executive, which is the office of the president and all the departments that run uh, within it. And you've got the legislature, which is, of course, the House and... um, and the Senate within Congress. And they're set up as separate powers for good reason. The idea being that, that, generally speaking, there would be checks and balances between them. Now, one of the reasons is to stop mavericks coming to the fore and taking up very powerful political posts. Lord forbid one of them might even become president one day. Hmm, something's happened. Something's not quite working here. So I think it's worth keeping in mind some of the ideals and principles that were put in place. But we're living in a different world. And America has changed. And that system, if it isn't entirely broken, it's creaking and it's in a lot of trouble. So one of the examples given was um, that uh, pork was reformed. (laughs) What is pork and how did it make a difference? How did it help the political system? And Mm -hmm. how is its absence holding up the political system? Well, you're asking the son of a pig farmer, so I'm happy to talk about pork. Um, (laughs) Simplest way to think about pork, I mean, people call it pork barreling in the United States. And that really refers us back to the late 18th and early 19th centuries when, you know, pork barrels, barrels of smoked pork were, uh, you know, an important item to have within your family. They were, you know, an issue of value and they could be traded and so on. So you can take it back that far. The simpler way to think about this is it's about bringing home the bacon. It's about going into national politics, 
but trying to benefit the local, the place where you came from. So what you do is you wait till some large federal appropriations bills are coming along and you try and scrape out a bit of that pork and send it back into a project back in your home state, maybe to build a bridge or to you know provide hospitals or research wings at universities or whatever it might be. Now, starting in the 1990s, there was a push to reform this. It was seen as by some as corrupt, and by others as just lacking transparency. So a good deal of it has been battened down over the recent years, especially starting in 2005 when Congress agreed a moratorium on, on, on pork. Uh, that said, uh, it, it, it's something that has existed and run reasonably well for a very long period of time. So you asked, what are the pros and cons? The cons are quite obvious. It's not... Uh, Obviously democratic. It means that individuals are working for the benefit of the local and not for the national. So you can see it through that lens. On the other hand, you could argue that it, excuse the pun, it greased the wheels of government. It made things work. So depending on how you look at it, the loss of pork is something that is adding to the gridlock. Or on the other hand, it's something that might have helped us avoid it. So you can look at it either way. And so we would call that parish pump politics. <laughs> we and would. That's yeah. going to be what Johnny's going to be talking about in a few minutes. But Karen, I want to come to you on another matter about American politics. And that is, so another quote from the article is, there are only individual actors pursuing their own political interests and ideological missions willy-nilly like excited gas molecules in an overheated balloon. So you've got the rise of people like Ted Cruz and Paul Ryan and these people that obstruction is how they've risen to prominence. They just, there's nothing in it for them to actually help budgets pass and govern. Now, how did they come to power? That's a very interesting point of the article. So the first thing is to mention that um, the concept of a filibuster, which is basically in um, Congress running down the time clock on a piece of legislation so that essentially um, nothing can be can happen on it. Like you can't get any votes passed, you can't get budgets passed. We've had a number of shutdowns when I was living there on a Fulbright 2012 to 2013. There was a number of shutdowns where it just basically government, uh, federal employees were told not to come to work because there was no money there to pay their wages. This is actually um, a Republican strategy. So it ties in with the hard right and the Tea Party and the Libertarians, which basically are in favour of what they call small or no government. And they just want a free market and they don't want any rules and regulations. And they believe that's how society should be. That's one worldview. Um, But there was an interesting piece that I read um, a couple of years ago from an insider from the Republican Party who had basically sort of left the cult, as he said. And he explained that this is actually a tactic to filibuster and to stop legislation from passing and to complain about Congress, saying that it's chaos. Um, one of the things I think Jeb Bush called Donald Trump was that he was a chaos candidate and people were delighted with this. They thought this was great. So what they're trying to do is persuade the ordinary low information voter that politics cannot actually do anything and therefore you shouldn't bother voting. So the middle classes and the low information voters, they kind of feel so disillusioned, they, they kind of give up basically. And that plays into the hands of the extremes. And we've seen since 2012 that the candidates that are getting elected in the houses of, of Congress, so at the Senate and the, and the Republic, the House of Representatives, are more extreme on either left wing or right wing as a result. So it's really a, a strategy by the hard right and by some Republicans to ensure that essentially the democratic system doesn't work because 
in a way they're they're against democracy um and this is an extremely serious development um and it's actually been helped by super PACs and will you just explain the phrase that you can get primaried so you could have a say a sane republican who you know is interested in working and trying to get a budget passed but um he can get primaried by the tea party so he can't even get on the party's ticket at the next um election because in the primary uh, part of the process, the wreckers come in and nominate somebody else. You have to be a, a member of the political party, and this kind of goes to voter registration as well. You have to be a member of the political party, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats. And remember, the Tea Party is not an actual party, it's just a movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a right wing sort of element, very far right element of the Republican uh, party. Um, in order to vote in primaries and caucuses, which is where the Democrats and the Republicans voters make members of the party make decisions about who they want their candidate to be. So, I mean, we saw it in the, in the for example, in the Democrat Party between Bernie Saunders and Hillary Clinton. And there was a lot of dirty tricks going on at the higher echelons of the Democrat Party um, over trying to uh, essentially discredit and disrupt Bernie Saunders um, rallies and speeches and so forth. So it's really at the level of the primary where the basic politics takes place, which then gets elevated to the general election level, which we're now into, where we have candidates that are basically less than ideal. And it's about compromise. And I think, you know, to draw the analogy again with the Democrat situation, Bernie Saunders is not... Um, he was an independent um, up until three months before he had to declare um, for the, the Democrat Party as a candidate. And, you know, he doesn't have the kind of resources that Hillary Clinton has. Uh, he doesn't have the kind of backing from Wall Street. His discourses, and I follow him on Twitter, are very much telling the reality of US politics that has actually never been told before. Um, and I think that that doesn't go well with the party establishment, which is hooked into a number of funding regimes, whether it's big business, whether it's the oil industry, whether it's the arms industry, or whether it's even prisons. I mean, prisons is a privatised industry in the US now, and it has the highest level Mm. of incarcerated population in the world, one in 100. Um, So this is is the structure of American politics is fed by money. And since 2010, with the introduction of super PACs, it's even more fed by money. And the real good candidate, um, and I personally would follow Bernie Saunders, um, you know, to declare yourself as a socialist in America is, is quite stunning. But those kind of candidates, even the Green candidate, any independent candidates just can't get a look in because of what we call the binary system. It's Republicans versus Democrats. So, Terry, you see, this is where I have sympathy for voters, that you've got this establishment that has created a system that has done very badly for an awful lot of people and the neoliberal agenda and all of that. But the the political action against that is to vote for protest candidates and to vote against governments. And yet we seem to have ended up where it's definitely in America and certainly here, we're voting against governance in itself. So when Trump, when Jeb Bush said that about Trump, that he was a chaos candidate, um, as the guy Jonathan Rush wrote the article, said, unfortunately for Bush, Trump's supporters didn't mind. They liked that about him. OK, we'll come back to the thing of yep. them liking that statement. The first thing about this is that what we're seeing is an oppositional situation between the system and the self. When Brexit happened, it was not that Brexit won. It was that Europe lost 
and Europe lost because it was seen as a big, shapeless, grey, threatening, ridiculous, expensive bureaucracy. And so the British asserted their sense of self. It's an historic sense of self and it was cluttered with issues of racism and so forth. But that is a recurring pattern and that is part of the Donald Trump phenomenon. Whenever you have people saying, oh, he tells it like it is, that is when you need to be very frightened because what they're doing is this person or people are appealing to the worst instincts that most of us would like to deny we have, but that all of us actually do have. And what about that um, sense that it, this isn't just about Trump, that this is chaos, there's a, that there's a political system that's collapsing, that cannot organise itself anymore? Don't accept that at all. Uh, democracy in every country where it exists is different because of the nature of the country. I mean, our version of democracy is crucially different to that in the UK. But the thing about um, uh, individuals coming through the system is always the same. You have a misunderstanding on the winning side. Hillary Clinton's Democrats, and particularly Hillary Clinton, are pushing all of the wrong buttons. First of all, they believe that truth matters in this election. (laughs) doesn't matter. We're in a post-truth situation. And all of the accusations made thus far about Trump by Hillary, have gone down like a lead balloon with her own people. The thing about the deplorables, her own people forced her to roll back on that, which she should never have done. And secondly, it pleased everybody on Trump's side. So there's a profound misunderstanding, aided by the fact that Hillary Clinton has always lived in a democratic bubble. And so she actually thinks that coming out and talking about the alt-right will move people to do something when most people are saying the hell is the woman talking about? So a lot of the success, just as Brexit didn't win, Europe lost. If Trump wins, it will be that Hillary Clinton and the Democrats lost by not realising the changed context they were in and working within it. And what about that idea of organisation, that the party must stand, the centre must hold, otherwise you just have chaos? Or is it possible to displace the party and still have a governing system? No, it's not. Anybody will tell you that even in chicken farming, um, (laughs) if you have a chicken, day-old chicken, and you remove it from its immediate family and you take it across maybe 200 metres to the other end of the huge barn, that chicken will work its way back to its own family and on the way it'll get pecked half to death by everybody else. Every other chicken. I mean, chickens are like that. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But the point is that you cannot ever, as proven by Roisin Shortall and co, you cannot ever have an unled, unstructured, disorganised political party. You have to have organisation. But you don't start with the organisation. You start with the dream, with the idea, with the personality who is carrying the hopes and aspirations of a nation at any given time. And any nation, whether it's America or Ireland, always has hopes and aspirations and they should not be dumped upon from a great height. The fact that some people have local aspirations needs to be taken care of. 
The real danger is that governments, and this has happened in the last 20 years in Ireland, have fallen in love with the system. We haven't been living in a nation, we've been living in an economy. Mm. And we've all been encouraged to basically mind the economy instead of saying, but what is this thing Yeah, I noticed that. And it was about 20 years ago that manifestos and government reports started coming out saying, and our duty is to, you know, grow the economy. And I think, you know, should it not have been society? But yeah, they did that. So Johnny Fallon, so let's try and see if any of this translates to Ireland. Let's go back to where we started on pork and parish pump politics, because obviously the John Halligan thing was very big this week. And the the default position is that we sneer at that, mm-hmm. you know, that this is degrading politics. But maybe it is what we need to keep the system going. What do you think? Well, it's always necessary to a certain degree. The thing about parish pump politics is parish pump politics is always bad when it's somebody else's parish. When it's your neighbouring parish, you don't want them to have what you don't have. So it's bad and it's bad for the country and it's bad for everything. When it's your parish, it's good. Is and it's important and this is different and people have their own local issues. Any system has to have local issues and it has to have the ability of people to feed into that. And that doesn't matter. When you talk about systems, we're talking about the, the US to Ireland. Go back to the Roman Republic when you had senators going in with clients, listening every day to their problems and their issues and bringing that and putting it through the Senate. And eventually what happened to the Roman Republic, it collapsed. Why did it collapse? Because they reformed it so much and they put in so many new rules and new positions in the Republic to try safeguard against lunatics taking over or problems happening or a dictator arriving in or somebody getting too much power that they reformed it so much that's exactly what happened. And then to a degree you're seeing that in America. Now it's not inevitable that chaos will ensue or that the system cannot recover. When you apply that to Ireland are we going down the same roads? To a degree that is happening in Ireland but it's not inevitable that it's going to continue that way. One of the things that's an interesting parallel between what you've mentioned about the US and the Irish system is that the party, yeah, the the old way of working the party changes. And what happens over time is people keep getting sold this message that the party's a bad thing. Yeah. And the organisers and the handlers and that that centralisation within the party, that's bad. And we've got to root that out and change it. So we reform it. Now, the problem is very often we reform the wrong things. So if you go back in Irish politics and you went back to the days of Neil Blaney and people like that, you know, when they started organising real serious campaigns and canvassing on a grand scale and all that, Their grassroots were very well organised. They were very active. They were involved. They ran functions. They ran dinner dances. They had influence over their TD and therefore influence over what happened nationally. We started to change and begin to look at places like America and we start to say, oh, you know what? No, we're not cool enough anymore. We need to change. We want to get rid of all that old (laughs) stuff, that grubby old stuff and chicken and chips, all that. We want to have now nice things. And then we want to start moving. But then we alienate the grassroots. And then we say, right, we're going to change that. And we're going to reform to get the grassroots more effective. But what do we reform? We start doing stuff. And you see this in the UK with Labour. You've even seen it in Fine Gael having a little bit of a crisis at the moment as if they replaced their leader. This thing of, we'll give them a vote on the leader. Yep. That will change. Yeah. Why? Why? That's not where the members really need to be active. That's not the duty. They want to go back to what they used to be active on, where they used to hold real influence, not just throwing them out something like, here's a vote on the leader, that really they don't have the potential to really change. But by doing that, you create these 
hiatus in the system. The party can't get a leader in time. It can't react quickly. And we start breaking down those central rules that there are certain things in it. Sometimes when you're running a party, you have to be a bit mean and nasty and and you say, right, you guys go off and do that. We're going off to do this. This has to be a military style. Parties are part of democracy, but they're not democratic within them. They tend to have to have all these different groups that have their function and work very well and understand their objective for a party is to win, to get through what their voters want them to do or whoever the people they represent. They have to win and get that through and get those policies through. But we keep reforming it to the point that you weaken it. And then you get a system where you don't get the candidate true or people, too many members of the UK where the Corbyn situation, you know, has been in. Because Corbyn's going to get re-elected. He's going to get re-elected easy. And they seem to have a huge amount of members who weren't part of the Labour Party. Now, that's so. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. Corbyn could be a great leader. Maybe he'll be a great prime minister. Maybe it'll be the best thing that happened to them. But the point is, for the old Labour Party, it's broken down. It's breaking down in certain ways in the US. And in Ireland, the real challenge to watch over the next couple of years is what's going to happen here. Are the parties, particularly the major parties, and I include Sinn Féin, uh, Labour, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are they able to reorganise their centre? Are they able to get control of the situation? Are they able to bring their voters with them in an organised fashion? If they are, those parties will get control and we will end up in something like a four-party system with a few independents. If they're unable to do that, then yes, you continue down a road where parties start to break up and they start to disintegrate and then you get to that point where yes it becomes like the Roman Republic there isn't anybody there unless somebody assumes power and that's that's so, long term So though. just to summarise are you saying that the parties therefore need to be more authoritarian and less democratic in, in the in long certain, Yeah in yeah. certain areas they have to be you, you have to realise that in a constituency say in the Irish situation your grassroots members have to have authority and power within their constituency to run and run their show and run their candidate. And you shouldn't be authoritarian over there. However, as you go up the line as to what the party's doing, you must become more authoritarian. But they're doing the reverse. They're taking away the powers at constituency level and then throwing out disorganised ways of giving them power at a national level that really people don't want. They don't want to be sitting on a policy committee once a year to talk about what we're going to do with transport. They want to <laughs> handle their constituency and say, let me be sure that I select my local candidate. That's where they want the power. But parties are, are doing the reverse. Very good. I'm talking to Karen Devine. That was Johnny Fallon speaking. Liam Kennedy and Terry Proner with me in studio. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the middlemen. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning and welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about politics this morning. Perhaps we need disruption in politics, but if the result is chaos, are we better off with the status quo? Liam Kennedy is director of the Clinton Institute at UCD. Karen Devine is a lecturer in international relations at DCU. Terry Prone is chairman of the Communications Clinic. And Johnny Fallon is political analyst with CAR Communications. So Liam Kennedy, before the break there, Johnny Fallon was talking about how the party needs to be authoritarian and yeah. you need to have these guys in back rooms who are organising it. And there was um, a good quote in this article we've been talking about from The Atlantic by Jonathan Roche. Mm-hmm. And in it says, the middlemen could be undemocratic, high-handed, devious and secretive, but they had one great virtue. They brought order from chaos. Mm-hmm. And I love that character in The Good Wife, Eli Gold. And he's the guy in the background <laughs> who's organising everything. And Frank Underwood, when he's the whip, right. you know, in Congress, yeah. that they it seems seems that they're the evil people mm-hmm. but actually they're they're organizing and we yeah. need organization so mm-hmm. do we need these guys 
We probably do, but if you don't mind me taking a step backwards just Off, to pick up ahead. some comments yes. that came through there. I was intrigued with this idea of being likened to the, the Roman Republic, and, I, and I'm quite serious about this, because in the United States, this idea that somehow we're in decline, this, this concept of decline has caught fire in the United States. A lot of people are talking about it. Trump uses that word a great deal, remember, right? Obama's had to step up and say, well, we're not in decline, but no one's listening to him. So what does decline mean? And in fact, it's a very nebulous thing. And this is where I have a, a slight criticism of this article we're working off because it's really focused on the idea of political chaos within a political mm. system where the cause and effect is all political. Mm. I don't think it is. I think it's much closer to what Terry talked about, the self and the system. So if we think about this idea of decline in the United States, it's not only political, it's a sense of economic decline and I think crucially a sense that civil society is in decline. And this is exactly what we were calling the grassroots a little bit earlier. So the, I think what you have is interlocking crises, only one of which is political. And those forms of decline, I think, work in tandem. So let me give you an example. We've talked about political decline as chaos. Fine. OK, I think that's there. There's some kind of sclerosis within the system of governance. There's no doubt about that. But what about economic decline? Now, right now, America is showing economic growth figures. But the public believe it's in decline. This is what's so important about this. It's a psychology as much as it's a reality. The sense of decline. If you look at the Pew and the Gallup polls over the last two years, they all say America's going in the wrong direction. Mm. They have no trust for governance. They have no trust for Congress. So this, this, this uh, anti-establishment nihilism, as the article pronounces it, is present, but it's not just political. It's not economic in terms of growth. It's economic in terms of the evisceration of the middle class. We have greater economic inequality in the United States. Now, we know this in the colloquial way. It's the 1% and the 99%, which I don't think is particularly helpful to think about it in economic terms. But think of how that idea caught fire in 2011 and has been with us ever since. It's got people talking about economic inequality in a way they never did before. But my point is economic inequality is linked to political disenfranchisement. They're both interlocking crises. The third example is civil society, by which we mean all of those organizations and institutions that stand between the state and the market, okay? Whether that's, um, you know, uh, schools, religious organizations, grassroots organizations, those are being deeply eroded in the United States. The American political scientist Robert Putnam came up with a good phrase for this years ago. He said, we're bowling alone. Mm. Bowling alone, okay? So that idea of America as being somehow knitted together through associations and through communality, uh, that, that sort of kept both the market and, uh, to some degree, the state politically in check, that has been eroded as well. So and I think when you put those forms of crises together, you have something seriously wrong in the United States right now. But to just call it decline suggests we're not yes. quite sure what to call it. Karen. So, yeah, it's interesting because Terry also brought up Brexit in this context. And I mean, I'm going to present a paper in October in Wexford Library on this. And one of the things I looked at and tried to explain the Brexit vote, which ties into what's happening in terms of the Dublin bus strike here. Um, you know, Ireland had 26 percent uh, growth, apparently. Um, and basically, uh, Dublin bus workers haven't seen wage growth in eight years. Mm. So let's parallel over to the UK and Brexit. So I look at data. Um, so I looked at data in terms of uh, whether the standards of living and wages have gotten worse or better. So even if a country, as Liam rightly pointed out, is growing economically at that big high meta level, you know, reporting your GDP figures internationally, OECD, all of that good stuff, 
the people on actually working and the working poor are getting worse and worse. So when you look at the data, as I did for the UK, I saw that wages and standards of living as a correlation with that have dropped between 8 and 10% in the last 10 years. Compared to wage growth in the 1980s, in relative terms, it's dropped by 20%. So people are less able to live off the wages they are getting. And this is what I think Trump and all the others are trying to tap into. And you're right, Liam. The problem is, is that media doesn't report this. It's not in media's interest to report this. Academics look at it and I have to dig for these figures, but they are there. You know, why aren't we talking about that? And that's kind of what Saunders wanted to point out. He wanted to point out the disparity between wages of a bank CEO and the workers. Like I worked in Bank of Ireland back in 2005. Um, the head of Bank of Ireland got 4 million in the same year that I was under 40,000. Um, and I was an executive. People in branches got even less money than that. So you have to look at definitely inequality. But why can't the media and why can't the political class talk about the fact that standards of living have dropped, wages have dropped, that we are living in austerity that is a political imposition because of wanting to bail out financial institutions who have bet 33 trillion US dollars on things like naked credit default swaps, which is just betting and gambling, not against assets. And Terry, you see, I wonder sometimes about this. Is that politicians have failed their people or are politicians actually just powerless anymore to control a lot of that stuff? So they're being made accountable for stuff they can't actually influence anymore. Oh, yeah. the, the level of understanding of what politicians actually do and can do is pathetic. It's not <laughs> newly pathetic because 40 years ago I edited a magazine called Young Citizen, which was all about training young people in understanding democracy. I only lasted a year because I realised this is not going to be possible for a little magazine going into schools. But the key thing is that there are always some strands in human need that continue no matter what. Humans have an an, an absolute need for connectedness, to believe in something bigger than themselves, to be valued by somebody else and to deliver on that perception. And that always astonishes me when I get very young people who want to go into politics coming into my offices and saying, OK, what should I do? And they want to start with the peripherals, with the externals, with what suit should they wear, what brands should they espouse, uh, what way should they communicate on Twitter. And I'm saying all of that is completely irrelevant. The first thing that you need to do is go away for a year. Come back to me after a year and tell me who in your local community would die for you because you've given them a bloody good reason to die for you. There are people in every single community who ache to be asked, who just want to be involved and the politicians who go out and create that groundswell, then they can put media on top, then they can put um, social media on top and all of the other things. But if you look at somebody like Obama, he had that understanding of local communities because of what he had been before he went into national and Which was sneered politics. at. Yes, it was. But going back to Johnny's point, one of the key people that every politician had in ancient Rome was the nomenclatura. 
the slave who stood beside them and whispered, this is Liam East with the such and such institute, so that the politician, the senator, could say, ah, how are you? Nice to see. And how's the institute going? Um, that is still necessary. That is, that is a point of connectedness with people. And the problem is that at the moment, the people who are doing that best are the people like Donald Trump. Now, all of liberal Europe and America goes, ah, the possibility of Donald Trump. I think that we need to get a grip of the paradox that, first of all, people do not vote for candidates because they like the candidates. They vote for candidates because of the way the candidate makes them feel about themselves. Everybody felt so cool and groovy when (laughs) Obama was elected. Everything was possible. But the fact is that in America, during the Obama presidency, racism has grown, disaffection has grown. All of the things that, in theory, this president was qualified, super qualified to prevent have happened. So let's not worry too much about the stereotype of a fruit bat named Donald Trump. Let's worry about the processes that we're not managing right generally. I have to take a quick break. We'll be back with more after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about politics this morning. Terry Prone, Liam Kennedy, Johnny Fallon and Karen Devine are all with me in studio. Um, Johnny Fallon, we were talking about what can politicians actually do these days? I was very struck this week with the row about NAMA. Okay, and we're all up in arms because it looks like NAMA made a hash of this Project Eagle sale in the north. But when NAMA was being designed, when the legislation was going through, it was done very carefully to make sure that the politicians, especially those in government, could not interfere in NAMA in any way whatsoever because they were trying to legislate out potential corruption. The result was that when Michael Noonan finds out that maybe PIMCO pulled out of this deal because there was some dodgy goings on in the north, he actually can't interfere in NAMA. So we've taken away the political possibility because we legislated away, you know, potential corruption. So we're yeah. making our own problems. We, in a way. we do. And, uh, you know, no, nobody sets out to reform something and do the wrong thing. Everybody wants to do what's right. I mean, I remember Alan Jukes years and years ago warning about, you know, how when people give out about health boards and all that kind of stuff. And he was saying, look, if you get rid of any political influence, you get rid of the ability of the people to influence the system. He said, what we need to change is how politicians perceive they should be using that power, not the fact that they have a power to do it. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again. This uh, The Holy Grail is always the autonomous state body that we'll park over here and nobody has any influence over it. But then we know we're always unhappy with that because... You know, then who's accountable? At least a politician can always be kicked out at some point. Yeah. And therefore, there's some accountability in it. But we do need to reform in certain ways what politicians do. Now, the interesting thing I'll say to you is it is easy sometimes. And politicians do take it as an easy way out of throwing the hands up and saying there's nothing we can really do here. And one of the good things that's about the situation we're currently in where the parties have been forced and the dole has been forced in back kind of centre where they've got to negotiate with each other and come up with things is a realisation that, you know, because politicians have for a long time, they've gone native 
And they've come to accept that when they're told you can't do that, they say, I can't do that and walk away from it. Now, I think in the current system, we're beginning to change that because what I always say to politicians, you know, when you're talking to them is, you know, look, you need to have a strategy. But remember this. And, and you know, this is something years ago I would have taken from, from my days soldiering with Albert Reynolds back in the day. And it was always, look, you cannot achieve everything. That whole having a big vision, having a big dream, it's wonderful. But you're never <laughs> going to achieve all of it. And people are always going to be disappointed and say you failed and you failed on this, that and the other. Fine. But you pick out the couple of things you can do. And then you follow them absolutely with pure intent. And you at least have a legacy on them. Now, what politicians can do, and they're meant to be, in the system we've got, they are meant to be. One of the people say, why don't we have experts as a minister? They shouldn't be, in my view, because they should always be the counterbalance to groupthink. They should be the one saying, why? Why does everybody say this is the only way the health system can be run or the financial system? Only of these problems we've had with groupthink happen because the politicians failed to be that counterbalance to groupthink and slam their fists sometime on the table and say, I am the boss. And the weird thing is, when politicians do have those one or two things that they follow and they do slam their fist, they actually get things done. But decisiveness is in short supply. Karen, I want to go to you. Now, so I know your expertise is American politics, but cast an eye then on Irish politics for a minute. And what Johnny was saying about groupthink, and and I've seen that happen, and I'm sorry to say, particularly with Michael Noonan, I think he went native on the first day. The civil servant said, no, no, you can't do that. And he went, yeah, all right. And I'm a fan, but I think that's what happened. So whilst I might cast a jaundiced eye against the Shane Rosses and the Halligans who've ended up in government, is it actually what's needed that you have fresh blood in there and that they will come in and resist that perhaps to a stronger extent than the establishment parties would? It's an interesting question and and in a way I'm going to take up on what Terry had said earlier about having a grand vision and saying to someone who wants to get involved in politics, list off the people who are willing to die for you. And then in terms of what Johnny was saying, um, in terms of having somebody that, you know, you can pick one or two good like important things and really go for that. And I just at the weekend was um, delivering a paper at a summer school and I'm t- we're, we're in 2016 and 1916 is a big part of my, my thinking um, on these kind of issues. And I actually wrote a paper looking at the traits of political leaders from Daniel O'Connell to, well, before him, Wolf Tone, all the way through to the 1916 leaders. And then after that, after De Valera from Sean Lamass onwards, and one of the th- traits that I saw was that the ones after De Valera were happy to go along with vested interests. And that feeds into our deference to the European Union. So it's not only in a way that politicians, as Johnny was saying here, is that they accept from a civil servant, we can't do this. The problem is, is where an awful lot of our legislation is decided at the EU level. Irish ministers have actually are, are proud during referendum campaigns to tell Irish people we're great Europeans, we've never used our veto. Now when I hear this my head explodes <laughs> and I rant in lectures to my students going, that means that our minister never did his democratic job which is to represent you and me and our interests at the EU level. Look at Denmark, it's a small country like Ireland, 4 or 5 million population, agrarian etc., they stand up for themselves at the EU level. They have vetoed plenty. They've got opt-outs when they need it. So it's not just at the local level where we have politicians that have been there for a very long time. And this kind of feeds into 
why Trump, and if you remember when Obama was against Hillary Clinton in the in, in 2012, he said to Hillary, he, he criticized history, Hillary for saying, you know, you've been in politics for 15 years. You don't have the capacity for change. We yeah. do need new blood And Liam, change. is that the point that somebody like Hillary... I mean, my view of Hillary would be, I think she's probably done bad things in order to get to where she is now. But she probably felt she had to do them because overall it's still better that she's there and not, you know, a Trump or somebody like that. So does being in politics render you actually unqualified and unfit to do the job? It does today. It didn't always. Uh, that's the perception in America, that being in politics renders you unfit to be is in politics. Is it true? I don't think it's true, but I think... Um, I think we're in a, a strange phase of American politics, uh, back to that idea of chaos. And one way to think about this, these issues of accountability um, is, is to turn it back upon people like your good self, Sarah, and that is to mention the role of the media. I'm the so glad you brought it up. Good. Please. No, I, I, meant, I meant to raise it. So It was mentioned by Karen, but we yeah. haven't really got into it. It's, and, and it was mentioned indirectly, I think, by Terry when you talked about a post-truth age, Terry, and I think this is really essential to all of this. One of the ideals of um, America as a liberal democracy is that uh, the media functions, and particularly journalism functions, as a watchdog. That hasn't been happening for a long time. Now, I, I think, relatively speaking, it happens pretty well in this country. And I don't say that simply because I'm sitting in your show. Okay, I, think it's pretty I good. actually don't agree with you. Okay, well, that's, but... I would like you to come back on that one then. Yeah. But let me finish where I was, yeah. if you don't mind. I think that that role hasn't been played for a long time, and there's a host of reasons for it, principally economic. Uh, the political economy of the media is, is falling apart in the United States. You know, newspapers are closing. Investigative journalism is almost impossible to fund. This is a huge problem. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that to some degree, the media are complicit with the uncivil nature of the new politics. And I would pin that back to a gentleman called Newt Gingrich in the 1990s. When Gingrich came to Congress, and at the same time as he arrived, about two years later, C-SPAN started to televise Congress 24-7. And Gingrich realized that he could perform for the cameras. And that's all he really needed to do. And he started to drive the discourse of politics into an uncivil quarter where it has been ever since. And Donald Trump is part of the result of that. And that incivility of discourse is, I think, a feature of what we're talking about here. And I'm and actually... Let's face it, Hillary yeah. Clinton got dragged into that very recently. And I am actually have a show planned on journalism and mm. its role and all of this. It's a separate conversation. Could I just make one little interjection just to back up Liam's point? Because um, I, I, I looked again at data on this. Um, six corporations in the US control the US media yep. currently. Six. Yep. Whereas back in the 1980s, the figure was 90. Right. That's all I have to say. Terry, I'll give you the last word. Is it fixable? Of course it's fixable because it's human and we are always on the grow and we are always learning. And we are always pompously critical of whatever is going wrong in our time and particularly about the discourse and the uncivil nature of the discourse. The discourse is incredibly uh, uncivil at the moment. It has been incredibly uh, uncivil in the past. It was just we didn't have so many conduits bringing it to us. When we talk about the contribution of media, I hope that you do do a programme because media in this country tends to favour 
all of the viewpoints that we in this room would probably espouse, the liberal, the uh, non-faith-based, whereas there is a deep prejudice towards faith-based, towards the right wing and towards anybody who believes in, for example, uh, not being pro-choice. To such an extent that the people who passionately believe this, we may not be believe it, but they do, and they have the right to, and they are presented as if not just they were stereotypes, but that they were embarrassing representations of an historic evil. And it's time that media questioned itself on that. Right, well, I'll just invite you all back next week to continue the conversation. That was Terry Prone, Liam Kennedy, Johnny Fallon and Karen Devine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Aoife Breen produced, Ronan Bratnark Research. Bobby Kerr is up next and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.